Due to the non-Euclidean and shifting nature of the Giant Brain HQ, tonight's interview is taking place in the warm environs of RPG Corner, an appropriate place to chat to my two guests, well, one at the moment, tonight. Both have backgrounds working for Games Workshop, both are known names on the UK tabletop role-playing game scene, and their podcast, What Would the Smart Party Do?, is the premier UK RPG podcast. At least that's what Gaz told me to say. Not content with this, they have both published RPG content, and tonight we are going to talk about that amongst a variety of other topics on the UK role-playing game scene. I'm delighted to welcome Gaz Barabank to the Giant Brain HQ, and hopefully we'll be shortly joined by Baz Stevens as well. How are you doing, Gaz? Yep, living the dream, Ian. Glad to be here. Uh, it, this at least puts paired to that thing that everybody seems we're like Burton anyway. Uh, Morecambe and Wise that sleep in the same bed and know each other's business, that we do actually live in separate places. So yes, just me here, co-host of what the Smart Party Do podcast. See, I, I think that's just protesting too much now. I think this is just now a, a sort of a, a feint to to prove that you're separate entities and don't live in the same house. I know Baz is downstairs <laughs> making you a nice cup of tea. I do quite frequently get called Baz and tagged in for things that he's done, which is uh, a double-edged sword, shall we say. <laughs> Fair enough. I keep my ear to the ground as much as possible with Tabletop News because we run the Brainways podcast, but you're much more involved in the RPG scene than I am. So what has the last couple of years been like for Tabletop RPGs? Uh, pretty good, I would say. So a, a lot of people have turned to not just RPGs, things like you know Games Workshop models or Tabletop board games or car games or computer games or whatever. So like the gaming scene as a whole, I think, got a boost from people being uh, forced to stay at home due to the pandemic and stuff. And that kind of like, uh, although bad on a, on a general scale that we've had this uh, disease rampant around the world, it has forced companies to adapt, to provide better tools online, uh, to force gamers to go online as well and try and learn how to interact with various things like mm-hmm. 20th platforms or Zoom to do the uh, AV stuff. And that's when a lot of people have been able to uh, game more. So me and Baz, as we are just discussing, don't live anywhere near each other, but we've gained more in the last couple of years than we have in the last 10 years, for example, because we've just been online a lot. And, you know, things like Critical Role and other streaming sites have been doing really well. They've done even better than ever. Uh, lots of little independents are setting up. Itch.io is another platform that sells uh, role-playing games where a lot of indie developers kind of go. And Indie back in the day and back when the collective endeavor existed, perhaps in the nineties or something, that meant Oh no, that's that's taking me back. I was part of the collective endeavor back then. That <laughs> drop you there. Yeah. That was a few people, a handful, but whereas it just it has like hundreds of different titles every month are appearing there. So RPGs are alive and well. And I think at least now we can put to bed that sort of thing where people, oh, we're always saying like, oh, RPGs are going to die, computer games are going to kill it, this is going to kill it. Oh, it's just just played by old people now, you know, used to play back in the day, and, and there's no no life in the hobby. Well, that's clearly wrong, isn't it? Because you know it's it's doing miles better than ever it was. So I guess one of the other things that we can we can talk about briefly that you probably get it quite a lot on the tabletop scene as well is. Um, kickstarter so if you yeah absolutely like the avatar kickstarter did whatever it was nearly 10 million dollars was it something like that um An absolutely unbelievable amount of money yeah it yeah. really has there's been a massive move to kickstarter of course uh and like we had one of my perennial favorites blades in the dark that was kickstarted as well and it's, it's become sort of an integral part of the tabletop scene over the last over the last sort of what five ten years it's, it's really taken over 
Yeah, and even people like we were speaking to um, Shane Ivey recently, and uh, you know, Shave Lance Hensley and Dennis Detwiller, and all these other people that um, back in the day used to have to like find the money themselves to publish some books and print them and wait for the money to come in to be able to then make more books, if you know what I mean. Uh, and now it just gives them a model of being able to sort of like fund it in advance so they can keep the, the churn of products coming out and that kind of thing because they know they're going to get the money back. And, you know, a distributor is not going to collapse and, and cost them thousands of dollars and stuff like that. I'm just trying to get Baz up on stage right now. We seem to have a slight technical problem, so just let me see how I can do that. Hello, can you hear me all right? Yes, we can. Hello, Baz. Super. Welcome, welcome to me and you. <laughs> Good to have you. Thanks very much for coming along. You're very welcome. Uh, as you can tell, we were just sort of chatting about sort of what uh, the RPG scene has been like in the last couple of years over the over the course of this weird period of our lives. Mm. And, and guys, you mentioned there that there's been like a massive move to online for everyone in the tabletop hobby, board games as well, um, over the course of the pandemic. And it it has felt to me like RPGs have done a better job of adapting to that. I mean, I guess there's a little less overhead for rpgs to adopt a more online presence so but what is what has your experience for both of you been like playing games online and where do you think it differs from real life experience both good and bad well for me i think it's better than no gaming is the, is the phrase i normally use <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's not as good as real life gaming because you get that social interaction there's the um, body language mm. you can tell of people there's the bonhomie there's the sharing jokes there's and stuff that come naturally and and I think Baz might talk a little bit more about this but it's a spokes of the wheel thing whereas around the table if it's not your go you can kind of talk to another player in character or otherwise and keep yeah. the balance going there's a little hubbub going around the table whereas online because multiple people can't speak at the same time you kind of have to do it like the gym's in the middle and everybody else is a spoke of the wheel and you've got to kind of go in and out on every question and answer sort of directed just on a one-on-one basis so that's probably where it lags a little bit. Um, but a benefit would be, for example, that um, something like FFG games tend to have lots of funky dice with weird symbols on and stuff, and you can get online rollers for them, so you don't have to buy more than one set of dice, because you generally do with FFG games. They don't give you quite enough dice in one set. And then try and work out what the symbols mean and, and work it out yourself. There's just an app that will do it all really quickly and get you to the result. So mm. there are technical advances, and you know you can drag and drop images in off, off Google search or whatever like on the fly, if you forgot to do some prep or you just want to like make something up and make a new scene, you can quickly just drag things onto the screen. That that's something you can do online. You can't do in person. But it's, yeah, it's I've, I've loved I've loved not having to print things for my blades games. It's just just get an image and chuck it in. It's great. Exactly. Yeah, it's just not got that warmth and uh, humanity that you get from first to first interactions. Yeah, it's, I've got a couple a couple of things. I mean, it's um it's an interesting perspective looking back over the last couple of years. But if I really think back, I was doing some online gaming before the pandemic. Um, quite a reasonable amount, I suppose, and I was astonished then, as I'm astonished now, that you can play a game of anything with someone from San Francisco and someone from New South Wales um, and someone from Luton, all on the same call. You know, that that's always been incredible. Yeah. And then we doubled down on that really hard over the pandemic. I mean, Gaz did more hours than I did, that's for sure. <laughs> but we were up to playing five, six, seven times a week, really smashing it hard. So wow. in some senses, it was it was way better than no gaming. It was better than the schedule I had for my previous gaming. But the other thing was that my home group had to transition to playing online. And we all live within about three miles of each other. 
But for a couple of years, though, I didn't see anybody from the chest down. So we were playing <laughs> a campaign that we'd started in real life, transitioned into Roll20 plus various things. And it's been weird in the last few weeks going back to a real table. Because, I don't know, my game prep changed massively. As a GM and as a player, as a player, I would just rock up with, like, well, nothing. Yeah. And as a GM, I'd spend all my time in between the games working with art assets, which I wasn't doing before. I was thinking of plots and stuff like that, and maybe some minis, you know, maybe a bit of a dry wiper raised board or something like that at most. But all of a sudden, my, my game had to massively improve on doing tokens and battle maps and, and learning the other stuff that goes with it. And that definitely put a flavour on the kind of games that we were playing. You could go from investigative stuff on a, on a Miro board to full-on foundry goober stuff with all the modules attached and it being completely automated. And it just felt like you're playing, in some respects, a, a kind of a cool video game, but just with your own personal mates on it. So, yeah, it's, it's flavoured our games massively. I'm not sure if it'll ever be the same again. No, do you, so do you, do you think there's uh, a few, as we do return to being around the table and playing games more in real life, do you think the sort of virtual side of tabletop RPGs is here to stay? Yeah, people. Yeah, people are going to, always going to do that, and, and so they should. It's um, it's always been difficult to schedule role playing games or board games or any kind of gaming night, and the idea of being restricted to people who are within a commute of you seems actually a bit ludicrous now. If that was the only game, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that would be mad, wouldn't it? Especially with the busy lives that everybody has. Um, you know, working from home, playing from home, that kind of stuff has just made it, although it was compulsory at the time, it's just made it a lot more accessible. I love playing around the table. It's still my preference. I'm sure of that. But I wouldn't want to give up the online stuff now just because it's, you know, not quite the same. That would be like giving up ready curries instead of <laughs> going to restaurants. I'm not giving up curries. They're both curry. <laughs> An excellent analogy. <laughs> The other aspect that um, it affects is conventions. Mm. So obviously a lot of uh, meat space conventions couldn't happen over the last couple of years, so a lot of them tried to do something virtual. Yeah. And that's continuing as well. And even grog meat, for example, that happened at the end of last year, there's a lot of people who consider themselves part of the community now because they spent a couple of years chatting and gaming with all those people wanted to join in, and they were like, oh, is there no, is there no virtual one? Like, how do we join in when we're in L.A. or Kansas or somewhere? So there was a kind of joint event, if you will, there was part online and, and part the real one that people in the UK oh, got to. So there's that aspect. I mean, terrible time to be a convention organiser, as if it wasn't stressful enough. Yeah. Now you've got two different versions. But um, there's certainly that aspect. And I know Seven Hills that's coming up um, probably in two or three months, the guys were pondering about whether just to make that virtual, just because they didn't want to necessarily because they didn't know how things were going to go or who would turn up and things like that. Did they want to book a, a venue and all that kind of stuff? Would it just be easy to do online? Uh, it was quite successful last time. So there's definitely a mix there about how people uh, connect still for, for big events, not just like a day-to-day -day activity or, or weekly groups or things like that. But if you are putting on a big show, you now have to have a virtual element. I would say there's definitely going to be people interested. Yeah, and there's an accessibility issue there as well. I've seen a lot of or disabled gamers saying, well, this, is, this has been great for us because we've been able to get along to conventions effectively and like interact with people that we wouldn't normally have been able to. And is that now all going to disappear as we move back to real life conventions and real life gaming? And hopefully like, like you say, guys, it'll be, there'll be a decent split. Uh, it will be a headache for organizers. I agree. But 
yeah, hopefully we'll see some sort of sort of split conventions, physical and virtual together. That would certainly be nice. Yeah, there's been an element of um, people organising themselves as well. And I think yeah. that's something that people can do go forward. If you want to keep a virtual element going that doesn't look like it might be, uh, maybe get one or two members of your community together and, and see if you can volunteer to do it. I'm sure most uh, conventions or, or game shows and things like that, but more than happy if someone else wants to take some work off their hands to make it happen. Yeah. If you can't get there for whatever reason it might be. There's been a Gen Kant community for a very long time, if I remember rightly, for, uh, for the yeah, big Gen yeah, Con, exactly. for instance, yeah. Absolutely. One other thing on the um, another thing on the online stuff, if I may, is just thinking that there's more than one type of online play because there's more than mm-hmm. one type of RPG. And um, I think over the last couple of years, I may be right on the timing with this. I think the first game ever released strictly for Roll Twenty came out, which was Burn Bright, not released as a book, not in any friendly local game stores. Oh yes, purely yeah. on Roll Twenty. I, I've not touched it. I don't know anything about it. But that in itself goes to show that there are now games that are being made strictly for online play. And I've noticed in rule books and the stuff that I can still get delivered to my door or from my game store, there's often now a chapter or at least a, a couple of paragraphs towards how do you play. And it's not necessarily assumed that you're going to be around someone's house around the table anymore. All the advice used yeah. to be about bringing snacks, didn't it? And being on time, <laughs> and now there's just as much advice about you know mute etiquette and how to play yeah. on Zoom, and and I think that's a good thing. I think that's a very good thing because you can play anything online because you can just use it as a phone call essentially, or you could be using that virtual tabletop. There's plenty of people play with just using an honesty system for dice, which is yeah basically just using dice, and then there's everything else that in between right up to the high crunch stuff. So you know yeah. there's. There's space for everything, and um, I think it's here to stay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've really enjoyed our, our games in Roll20. I mean, you know, guys run Aegon for myself and a group over the course of 2021, and that was brilliant, fantastic. And the, the, the modules that are being made on Roll20 are really Roll20 itself's a bit, it's a little clunky, let's yeah. face it. <laughs> but, but some of the modules on there are excellent, and especially um, Evil Hat seem to be doing a good job of like, having good modules for their games on there. And it does take a bit of the crunch work out of the system a little bit, which is nice. You can just press a button and things happen. Get get your result yeah. and move on. And there's a lot of other systems now. So there's like a Foundry VTT a lot of people yeah. use and people are writing their own modules for that for various complicated games. And there's a bunch of the browser-based stuff coming through. So it's been really good over the last couple of years. Like I said, necessity is the mother of invention. So the yeah. tools to enable you to do more stuff is just been developed as a result. Yeah, it's great. Uh, you two have both uh, done a little bit of self-publishing as well. In Baz's case, a whole new RPG in King of Dungeons, and Gaz has about some adventures. What made you want to turn your hands from sort of critics, commenters on RPGs into publishers? And how have you found that transition into actually putting out your own stuff? <laughs> so, shall I go for that one first, Gaz? <laughs> you, you go for it, Baz. Go for it, mate. Yeah, okay, thank you. It's... um. Yeah, I, I kind of always have been writing anyway, um, around the fringes of the hobby, the kind of, you know, the punditry side, really, but columns in magazines, reviews, um, website stuff, loads of that kind of kit, really. But like, I think many people, I thought if it wasn't on a page and it wasn't in a bookshop, it didn't really count. <laughs> so I thought, mm. well, do you know what? Why don't I just have a go at this? And I've always, always kind of Frankensteined bits of my games together sort of stealing best practice from various places and 
and adding them into whatever game. It didn't even really get to the level of house rule. It's a matter of style as much as anything else. And when I settled upon 13th Age, my sort of fantasy game of choice, I just realised that actually I was doing a lot of things with it and excising elements of it and adding in my own setting. And it just got my sort of tinkerer's gears going. And I just started editing it. And that seems like a strange way to go about it. So I started with a lot more words than I finished off with. Um, because I started with the 13th Age SRD, and a bit like, you know, the Michelangelo of role-playing, I was sort of chipping away at the marble of it until I could get down to the core of what I wanted, and then I added on a bunch of other stuff. So it looks like a beholder crossed with Venus the Milo now. But, you know, essentially, I really just wanted to hack away at something. And then I just enjoyed writing in tone, and, and I just took that advice of, write the kind of product that you want to see. So I just had a conversation with myself, and no one could argue with me. Um, the fact that it got published at all amazes me, and that wouldn't have happened if it weren't for the help of some great people in the community. And the fact that it was, well, successful by some metrics, very successful by other metrics, has continued to blow me away. Um, it was really difficult, but I was super glad I did it. Yeah, great. For yourself, Gaz? Well, yeah, like, I've done bits and pieces, so I've had, you know, an adventure publish for Earth Dawn and I've got a bunch of playtesting and uh, proofreading comment, uh, content uh, mentions and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and really, I'm a convention GM, uh, mostly. Like, I like writing. Every time I go, like, I could use the same adventure to different conventions, but I, I end up writing new ones a lot and produce them. And quite often people say, can I have your adventure? And it'd just be like a series of bullet points on the back of a beer map. So that wouldn't really <laughs> So I felt like I should produce something for the people and just looking at some of the content on dm's guild for example and on drive through itself they didn't the barrier to entry seems lower now than it's ever been yeah so my, my list of excuses for not writing something like you know finding someone to print my book and all this kind of stuff is not a thing you have to do anymore and i think quite a lot of people have found that, that if you can put a pdf together which is fairly straightforward you can actually publish to, to a greater or less degree and, and the thing that really sort of Help for me was having things like DMs Guild and Free League Workshop, and you know Pinnacle got one for Savage Worlds, and a bunch of other companies have as well now. Where to basically take half your money for free for not doing anything, <laughs> you get you kind of get to use their brand. And you know I like writing stuff for Savage Worlds or things like that. So uh, and you know the Free League games I really love as well. And if I've basically written a venture that I've run for people anyway, why not write it up? Yeah. And the answer is because it's actually quite a lot of hard work. Which <laughs> Play out and pictures and get editing and you know like try to force friends to proofread it or playtest it or do whatever else and that was always the barrier to me is I preferred writing something in a way that I could run it but then having to flesh that out for other people seemed like a bit of a stretch but uh, it's something I'm chipping away at so it's um, yeah it's a bit of a hobby in itself almost yeah it's I guess it's a different challenge running something the way you want to run it and making all your notes and then letting someone else run it that way and writing it up like that that's quite, that's quite a different challenge yeah and i'm still finding my feet with it to be honest i've written four different things now and they're all different yeah um, so i'm still trying to get a pattern of how much do people want and how much of myself do i put in there and like all the other things that writers probably tell you about but writer's never been my uh, number one priority so it's always been a bit late in life coming to it, i think but as i mentioned the barriers to entry are quite low now so it seems a good time to get involved well, yeah, let's let's talk about those barriers to entry because obviously, like in the sort of preamble, but just before Baz joined us, we were talking about crowdfunding and 
and Kickstarter in particular. They've had a massive impact on the general tabletop gaming hobby. I mean, with Avatar, it was like, to what, $10 million, something like that, the RPG Kickstarter. There's been various multi-million dollar board game Kickstarters, including, like, there's Marvel Zombie side going on right now for, I don't know how much money it's on, a lot. So, like, Blades in the Dark, Tales from the Loop, they've obviously been big successes on Kickstarter as well. Do you see crowdfunding continuing to play a part in the future RPGs, or are more marketplaces like you described, like the Free League one that's coming, drive through and itch.io are those going to take over from kickstarter is the sort of premium way to get things made it depends well, kickstarter is just one of many now isn't it yeah yeah yeah, yeah so <laughs> kickstarter shot itself in the foot a bit recently because it's trying to use crypto as a back end and then given nebulous reasons which don't make any sense as to yeah. why this will improve everybody's life and I can't see any, and I've got a data science master's, and I can't see anything in there. Haven't struggled to mine it for data. There was no. But, but blockchain, guys. The blockchain. <laughs> the blockchain. Funnily enough, I get this in my work life as well. You want blockchain? Why? I don't know, but like everybody else has it. No, but that's not a good reason. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's that, and so there's people going to Indiegogo or, or doing their own platforming. Um, mm. But that, that that's all for good. But I, I think that model of uh, people having to show their interest first and put a credit card details down in order for people to then publish the book seems like a way forward. And it'll be the better ones that survive, I think. So uh, Morris, for example, does a lot of his stuff, but it is like, written and ready to go. So when his Kickstarter funds, he presses the button and everybody gets the PDFs like within an hour sort of thing. So that, that's the good way to do it. And I'm sure in board games as well, there's all the horror stories of people who take years to pulpit something out. So there's, oh yeah, you know, the, the swings and roundabouts to it. But having a, a Kickstarter for an RPG that made a few thousand, you know, used to be a massive deal back in there because it's quite a niche hobby. Hmm. But now, like, there's regularly million dollar Kickstarters for role playing games and things like that. So I can't see, you know, when those sort of values of money are, are available. Can't see it going away anytime soon. No, it won't. It won't go. Yeah, there's, there's no, absolutely no chance. Yeah. Despite Kickstarter trying to be silly billies about about some stuff, they're the only game in town. Um, it is simply a fact these days that if you want to, well, it used to be a fact that you couldn't make any money out of role playing, and that's actually ancient history now because you can. You can make a living out of role playing. Not easily. It's certainly not trivial, but it's entirely possible. And if you want to make any money at all, you have to use the most popular crowdsourcing way to do that. It's madness to not launch a game on Kickstarter. The massively big boys, massively small girls do it. Everybody in between does it. You have to. It's a promotional tool as much as anything else. And I've yet to see anybody who can really compete with it just from that perspective. I've been on Itch. Of course I have. I've bought some stuff off Itch despite them trying their very hardest to not let me find anything to buy on Itch. It's it's just it's just not the same. It doesn't have that sort of sense of everything behind it. There's nothing wrong with being the eight hundred pound gorilla in crowdsourcing. You can argue whether there's you can do that in gaming generally, but I think as crowdsourcing, a central place to go is not a bad place at all. And the corollary to that is stuff like DMs Guild, if you're into D and D, or the various other community programs, are putting money in the pockets of creators. It might not be enough money. Again, I think there's an argument to be had about how much of the IP that you own and should you go it solo. Is it possible to truly self-publish and make a living out of it? And the short answer is it is. 
But for a very long time, you got nothing for your creations. I mean, nothing. You might have got published in White Dwarf or Dungeon or Dragon magazine, and you might have got a couple of quid for that if you were very, very lucky. But it was strictly amateur for decades. And that hasn't been true for a few years now. So it's not just about the money, of course. You know, it's nice to get some, but it's about having people see your stuff. How many games got released last year? How much stuff gets released on itch? Is it hundreds? Is it thousands every year? There was a time when I could, if I could have afforded it, I could have bought every role-playing book released in a year. But that's not been true for a long time. So how do you get to the top of that stack? You've got to get promoted. So that crowdsourcing thing is about building a community. It's, it's a marketing device, and it's here to stay, I think. Yeah, it's the same in board games, because I, I don't remember what the numbers are over the last couple of years, but it's something like 3,000 to 4,000 board games being released a year. And yeah, Kickstarter is a crowdfunding platform and also social platform mm-hmm. so it's yeah it's eyes on your product before it even becomes a product just hard to resist despite yeah all their cryptocurrency blockchain nonsense of late <laughs> they'll survive that they'll survive they'll come back from that because uh, a lot of people won't even know that that's a thing or care do you know it's like it's, it's a big enough platform that 99 percent of its users just use it in the way that 99 percent of people like use facebook or a bus you know, you don't you don't have to get into the, the stuff underneath the hood, which we would do because we're super interested, and that's why you have a podcast and we have one and we publish and stuff like that. But we're, we're very much the minority that cares about that sort of thing, unfortunately. Yeah, I was just checking in the Marvel Zombies um, Simon Kickstarter right now, which is uh, currently sitting at three million six hundred ninety two thousand eight hundred twenty pounds <laughs> with seven days to go. All right, that's yeah. it. <laughs> oh, man. Just pocket change, really. Oh, so we were talking. Sorry, go ahead, guys. Oh, just, I'm just going to mention about, about itch and um, drive through again, and, and that's that because the barrier entries are low now. It means a lot of people are producing content, and not all of it's great. In fact, some people might consider my content not that great. That's that's for them to decide. <laughs> but, um, I'll review. I'll review it later. After yeah, if you cast. could, that'd, that'd be lovely. If you don't review it the same way you reviewed STA that we mentioned earlier, that'd be great. Uh, so we've got. Um, Things like the Indie RPG Pipeline, which is two or three guys that basically look through all the new Indie RPG releases and then try and give a summary of it, because as they put it, there's a fire hose of new content out every month, and it's just not possible to consume it. So uh, I guess the problem with Drive-Thru and Itch compared to something else is that there's so much being produced now, it's just hard to see good stuff or, or what you might be interested in, even to the extent on DMs Guild when I produced my first uh or scenario for that there was a guy who commented saying oh I'm, I'm reviewing all the new releases and, and you're in my video and it's like an hour long video with just like 30 seconds to a minute on everything but he covered everything that was released that week and I mentioned my new release to him that happened quite recently uh, and he said like I can't do everything now there's just too many and in the space of six or eight months it's gone from him reviewing absolutely everything as even briefly to he can't even 30 second clip everything because there's too many things being published yeah that's that's incredible isn't it I mean just I mean, yeah, barriers, lower barrier to entry is great. It allows people to make stuff, but how do you stand out in that crowd? I mean, it's been a problem on something like Steam for, well, since Steam's inception, basically. There's so yeah. many computer games out there, it's hard to see the wood for the trees. The good thing about it is that anybody can produce a game, but the bad thing about it is that anybody can produce a game. <laughs> yeah. The worst thing about democracy, etc. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, we were talking there a little bit about how much sort of people get paid 
in the industry and and whether it's good to go alone as creator. So and there has been some controversy in the last couple of years about RPGs, about how much writers and staff are paid. Towards the end of last year, we saw Paizo staff form a union to negotiate better working conditions. Do you think action like that will start the ball rolling for the formation of unions in other RPG companies? And if it does, will people be willing to pay more for their products if they know the staff are being treated well? Uh, that I think that only applies to two companies, probably, Watsi and Paizo. Yeah. If you look at even something like Chaosium, which is doing really well, Cthulhu, I think, was like the third place uh, game most played uh, last year or something but that was only 10% of games and Chaosium's a handful of people and then a bunch of freelancers and so stuff like Cubicle 7 and so stuff like Modiphius and uh, even you know uh, Free League guys are, are seen as being almost big boys now but it is just a handful of people and then a lot of contractors and freelancers so you don't really have a group of people of enough volume to unionize or anything like that in most role-playing companies. They're just not big enough. It's like, you know, why is Jeff outside with a placard? Oh, he's on strike with the rest of the warehouse team. Well, it's just Jeff, so what are we going to do? There's, there's definitely been a, a period the last few years where it's been more visible, but, like, RPG writing stuff's always been underpaid, and when me and Baz were at Games Workshop, you got paid very little, and you did it more for the love of the hobby, really, and they kind of burned you out and got some new young people in who were ex- still excited. And that sort of like treadmill carried on. And I think the question comes around to how much do you pay people and what's what's viable? Um, when you see multi-million dollar Kickstarters, then there's there's a you know a definite thing there saying pay your artists and pay your writers well and on time and all that kind of stuff. That yeah. all makes sense. The more independent stuff that we're talking about, like can you afford to hire a professional editor and someone who's a sensitivity editor and get some proper art and do all these other things to produce your $5 book that might sell 100 copies? Well, no, you can't because the economics just don't stack up for that. So people should get paid a reasonable amount, but we've got to be cautious that people also don't want to pay $200 for a book. Yeah, yeah, there's no point in like making sure everyone gets paid well if you're not making any money to pay them, is there? Yeah, but those people with money should use it to pay their staff. That's a universal truth, I think. That's perfectly reasonable. Uh, let's take a little segue into your Games Workshop history. Uh, you, you've both worked for Games Workshop in the past, is that right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Give us a little sort of bit of an overview of your history of Games Workshop and uh, what do you think the company is like now compared to what, how you were working for it back then? It's um, For me, I did nearly 10 years at Games Workshop. Um, from the mid-90s to the mid-noughties, I suppose, or a little bit earlier than that, maybe. So I got into Games Workshop when it, everything was painted red, um, and I left <laughs> Games Workshop just after we were asked to keep making money despite Peter Jackson not making any more Lord of the Rings films, which was notoriously difficult. So I did, you know, a long time at Games Workshop, working in sales and retail, um, looking after stores, uh, looking after lots of stores, looking after a few stores. Um, kind of honoured to say, really, I still feel myself honoured to say that I was the manager for the Hammersmith Games Workshop, the original one, for a short time there. Um, and I had a brilliant time at Games Workshop. I had an absolutely brilliant time. Some of it is rose-tinted spectacles, massively so. But I have <laughs> friends from those days who will be friends until my last day. I'm, I'm a member of like a Facebook group of XGW employees. It's quite a big group, as you can imagine. And it is still the yeah. most hilarious place I go online. 
It is, you know, the people who worked for Games Workshop had a certain culture to them, to say the least. Never mind Boris and his parties in Downing Street. We had a drinking culture again. <laughs> it was unbeatable. And very much a young man's game. And I'm not that young man anymore. I couldn't possibly do it again. I have many friends who do. And I think like anyone who grew up in Britain and became a gamer of any stripe, you've always had half an eye on what Games Workshop are doing. Whether you played Warhammer or whether you bought the Judge Dread board game or whether you're into Age of Sigmar now, Whatever it is, Games Workshop's just like a massive, massive deal as a gamer. And it turns out it's yeah, a massive deal for, for the sure. economy now as well. So, you know, I'm glad to see that. Yeah. And I've got mates who still work for Workshop who were telling me about their five grand bonus they got. I guess a big wadge of cash each just for working so hard. I think we reported on late last year that Games Workshop now makes more money than Marks and Spencers or something like that. Some some ridiculous statistic. I am not surprised. Yeah. I'm not surprised. I mean, Gaz was talking a minute ago about like whether people would pay anything more for RPGs. I mean, I'm not massively into minis. I do play minis games quite a, a bit, I suppose, but I haven't been a GW hobbyist for some time. But when I go back into GW and look at how much they charge for stuff, and people are clearly buying it, you've got to you've got to assume that people will pay for good stuff. <laughs> because it's yeah. absolutely, it was always expensive, and now it's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So I had a good time at GW. It's but it's um, it's not the company it was, and it was a different company before I joined it. It's, it's long lived enough now to have gone through lots of different stages. It's kind of like a Doctor Who with its regeneration and everything. And I think yeah. it's going through a bit of a purple patch right now. It feels like it's having a good time and being a good company from the outside. So yeah, good. What about Pierce? What about for yourself, Gaz? Yeah, no, uh, probably similar to Baz, but like for a much shorter period of time. I, I made the mistake early on when people said Blackpool was the, the problem store of saying, I want Blackpool, then that, that didn't go well. <laughs> <laughs> I constantly had the Preston manager ringing up telling me he'd sold them the game because all the kids' parents worked in Preston down the road. So like, I get all kids excited and they go to Preston to buy the stuff, which was upsetting for me. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a bit weird. It's like working for the mafia almost in that, if you remember the Goodfellas, and he's saying, like, F you, where's my money? And you say, oh, well, this happened, I don't care, F you, where's my money, kind of thing. It's one of them with, you know, you're only as good as your last uh, month takings, uh, and if you did super well one month, that means nothing the next if you don't hit target, kind of thing. Yeah, um, I remember but, well from HMV days. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's you do get to play games and stuff and paint loads of models and just chat to people and stuff, so it is cool, but, like, it did definitely lean into people doing it for the love of it and not remunerating it probably when I was there. But if you're a hobbyist, as we were, talking to Bazzy's point about the cost of things, when, when I was there, it was, it was lead weight. It was cold for figures. So I think now staff discounts something like, you know, half price or whatever. But when we were there, you'd literally go and get a, a big box and fill it with handfuls of goblins and weigh it. And you had to pay something like eleven pounds a kilogram or something. So I won't buy goblins by the blister pack. I buy them by the kilo. I'm doing the to it. I'll just get like a, I don't know a kilo of goblins. That's probably enough, I guess. I've still got barrels of the stuff lying about. In my objective, if you walk into a games workshop store these days, they just start filling like a weighted carrier with like plastic yeah. boxes, and then going, "It's only five kilos of plastic. Here's a tenner." It was like pick and mix, wasn't it, mate? You'd go up and down the racks just hoovering stuff into a massive body, <laughs> basically. It was great. Amazing. Yeah. You had a little packing... Uh, it's not only ladies, to be fair, but yeah, the packing team would be on the other side, like, throwing things at you. You'd, you'd be getting hit by cow space marines. being called a ladybird because you had a red manager's jersey on and stuff like that. 
there's all kinds of weird and wonderful stuff happening. It was a very amateur company, it felt like, but somehow managed to keep rolling along. And I think nowadays it's just more an element of uh, professionalism because it's making, you know, real money. That's and lots of cash. Yeah. yeah. Indeed. And uh, you get people so like Henry Cavill turning up on the, the show, yeah. the show talking about playing Warhammer. Just and Graham Norton being very sniffy about it, which is very disappointing. Yeah, well, he's into uh, Eurovision, so he can shut up. <laughs> so uh, let's get back to RPGs. Uh, we're talking about popular things. Um, we can't really talk about RPGs in the last few years without talking about Critical Role and the trend for actual play podcasts and YouTube series. And I think it's fair to say that Critical Role has been fundamental in the success of Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition. What do you see as the benefits and drawbacks that a show like Critical Role has given to the, the given to the hobby? It's astonishing. It's absolutely astonishing. Gaz and I used to talk way back in the day about wouldn't it be cool if we could get role playing on telly? And, and our, our wildest dream would be very very late night Channel Four <laughs> after they'd finished doing live poker. You know, we could maybe because you know there, there's got to be a, an outlet for it somewhere. But then we poo pooed it, didn't we? And it's just like another stupid drunken discussion, really. It would never catch on. People watching other people play games. But then, you know, Twitch was the precursor to that, wasn't it? People watching people play video games, which is still a thing. So it's, it's madness in a way. I, it's not for me. I don't get it. I can't watch it for very long. Not because I hate it or anything. It's just not for me. Um, I'm really pleased that they do it. I'm hugely pleased that they brought so much more of a diverse audience into role-playing. Um, and it's not just people mm. who look and sound like me who I meet at conventions anymore. And that is down to Critical Role and possibly down to White Wolf in the 90s, but definitely down to Critical Role. That's amazing. I think what's what's a little bit, uh, kind of makes you kind of grind your teeth a little bit, is that the experiences that I have seen, and I think I've watched, I've watched a reasonable amount, to be fair, it's not a game that I recognise. And I don't even think it's fifth edition particularly. It's not, it's not the experience that I see around the tables that I play at. So it really, it literally says nothing to me about my games. And that's a shame. I think that's a shame. Right. Um, it's, you know, it's lip service to rules. They're far more interested in, as they would be as professional voice actors, they're more interested in improv. It was more like whose line is it anyway than the kind of games I see where there's, you know, <laughs> nog gags and people running off for snacks and and like you know monty python quotes and the rest of it uh, don't get me wrong their stuff's more entertaining than my game would be but it doesn't represent my gaming yeah i think that's true but it, it's definitely been a big success factor for D D specifically and i don't know whether Watsy fully appreciate it or not um i don't know anyone we're going to try and get someone on from Watsy again this year so i can ask him but um please Speaking to uh, Neil Gow, who, who wrote you to an honour, and, and so he was another member of the Collective Endeavour. I'll just name drop that again. <laughs> he's um, used to work in higher education. He's moved on now, but he's, he started a D&D club uh, a year or two ago, and uh, I think 20 people were there, including himself. And wow. Out, out of the 20, 19 of them came because they knew about Critical Role and they wanted to try it. The only person there that knew about D&D was him. <laughs> so like, that, that just shows you the cut through that. Yeah, it's uh, impressive. It's, but back in the day, D&D was a bit nerdy and nobody talked about it, but the, the success of people like Critical Role, there's plenty of streamers and shows and stuff that are out mm. there, is the thing that's making it, you know, geek chic. It's it's cool thing to do and be involved in. And they've been very good at building a community as well. Hashtag critters and, and things like that. Like People feel part of it. And it's even got to the point, talking of TV shows, where probably by the time you release this as a podcast, 
at Box Machina, which is one of their early campaigns. He's he's coming out as an animated series on Prime, so that that should be probably available by now. It's it's early this year, certainly. Yeah, the trailer's up there. Amazon Prime keeps shouting at me about it every time I watch something. There's never for Box Machina, just in case you didn't know you're on Amazon Prime and that's a thing that's coming. That was something again started from you know some people trying yeah. to bit of a stream kickstarting to see if they could do an animated series, and now it's on Prime. And it's that I think that's really good for role playing and gaming in general. Is that that stuff that me and Baz used to dream about over a glass of whiskey back in the good old days is now becoming a reality. And um, people like Dennis Detwell is godlike. He's he's almost in greenlit. He's, he's in talks about getting that as an animated series. Oh wow! TV company, and you know, there's a few people who've got irons in fires, uh, and I don't know. Maybe it's it's something to do with like Marvel movies and things like that as well. You know, the the whole culture that we've been on the periphery of or involved into a greater or lesser extent for many years is now becoming more and more mainstream, uh, and definitely critical role, and those are a part of that. Yeah. Uh, we've mentioned the Collective Endeavor a couple of times. I should probably tell people what that is. The Collective Endeavor was a group of mostly small indie RPG publishers in the sort of late 90s who would go to conventions together and basically pull together to get a stand at a convention, different publishers, but we'd all pull together to get to get the stand so we didn't have to have such an outlay. I was part of that with uh, very early card games I made, uh, Revenge of the Bee movie and a couple of other things. And with a mob justice that I wrote for Contested Grand Studios, almost forgot the name of the publisher there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here are still about um, A State's coming back very soon because uh, John Hodge, uh, John Hodgson is bringing back a new version of A State with Blades in the Dark as its core system. Yeah, which looks very tasty. Mm. Yeah, very successful Kickstarter. Um, right. So before we wrap things up and take. Get a couple of questions from the audience. Uh, thanks very much for turning up, folks. Uh, since we're at the start of the year, I thought we'd uh, delve into crystal balls and such like and ask you what your predictions are for tabletop RPGs over the course of 2022. Do you see any trends coming, any particular big projects, any controversies coming up? All right, so D&D will be back again. Uh, sixth edition has been whispered. And that whisper is going to grow into a talk, and then yes, it has. Yeah. Thing. What I'm really excited about with sixth edition D and D, because I get excited about every edition of D and D, is I don't think it's <laughs> going to be a massive change from a rules and mechanics point of view, because I think I, I am yeah. as I'm with you on that one I, because of cause of the critical role stuff we've been talking about. There's such a mainstream. Mm adoption of D&D that I think a massive change would put people off. Tinkering. And that's fine. That's not a problem yeah. at all. That's what many other games have done for years. And Call of Cthulhu arguably has done that its entire life. Um, it's maintained that kind of back compatibility. And I think, you know, they got burned when they did fourth. So they'll know about that now. And they've got some canny people in charge. <laughs> I love I like fourth. fourth. I love fourth. And I will go to my grave loving fourth. I'll probably be very lonely. <laughs> I, I really love fourth. But the fact yeah. of the matter is that they now know they absolutely know that that, that needy bit there. Yeah. And the success of 5e has made Paizo a bit of a smaller dog anyway. So, But the thing I'm excited about is nothing to do with the rules anyway. I am. My prediction will be, and I have nothing to base this on at all apart from my own conjecture, is that we won't see a three hardback book model for D&D. I think D&D will exist mm. in a different physical and or digital way to the way that it is now because that three... That three hardback book model was the original one with AD&D, and they've stuck with it ever since. 
and yeah. you could say, why change a good thing? But I think everything we've talked about on this recording so far points towards not having a big, fat, hardback in a shop in order to grow your brand, make your market. I don't know what that will look like. Yeah, more, more accessibility. You know, D&D yeah. Beyond will be, will be integrated much more into what's see than it has been, and, and all of those things will happen. They tried it with 4th, and you know that, that fell apart for, well, go check it out for loads of different reasons why that didn't become the digital tabletop that it should have done. But this, the, I think the form factor is the thing I'm more excited about than whether a kobold has got ascending or descending armor class. <laughs> Fair enough. What about for yourself, guys? Yeah, I don't really have predictions. I have things that might happen. I think the digital point that Bass makes very good. Uh, I won't be surprised if there's more stuff that comes out that's digital only. That just seems like a format that's easy to get out there and people will consume. But mm-hmm. there's still, you know, a really good market for Dead Tree books and big bundles of stuff on Kickstarter. So free, they generally do a bundle when they produce a new game, which they do frequently. Um, but they got bitten quite recently because the, the whoever proved the die did it incorrectly for the feet die on the one ring. So it's slightly misprinted. They've got an 11 instead of a one. So it's still usable because you just treat 11 as one. But it's a bit of a thing. And when you're super successful and you've got hundreds of thousands of backers, that's a lot of mistakes to correct all of a sudden. Yeah. But, you know, people will still buy stuff because as all these like spending money on dead tree. So that, that will come. But I think a digital uh, solution or offering is definitely something we'll see more of uh, as time goes on. And I'm also wondering if something will come from streamers. So I think there was talk at one point of Critical Role writing their own game, for example. Mm, so would, yeah. would that be a thing? Uh, will it impact D&D? Probably not that much, especially as a new addition to get excited over. Um, but will it start to happen that people who are doing streaming of other people's games suddenly decide to do their own once they've got a community built up and all the rest of it? questions like that i think one of the things i can see happening certainly the top end is people monetizing rpgs which i never thought would happen and it's in some instances less about people doing it for the fun of it and the community feel and more about being a profession uh and i'm not saying whether that's a good or a bad thing but it's probably good for the hobby as a whole that you can have a profession in role-playing games now do you mean sort of like access to like D beyond or similar platforms for money rather than for free yeah, kind of some thing. sort of subscription model or yeah. something like that. I know a lot of games get add-ons, so you can buy it, you know, the, the Roll20 add-on and stuff. Uh, the new freely digital thing isn't a platform in itself. It's just a set of digital tools to go with either your pen and paper game or to use with an online gaming yeah. platform. But that's like something, an extra set of features that are digital that you can, you can buy now that wouldn't have been needed five years ago, i say. Yeah, there's been a few rumors swirling around that Wizards will take D&D Beyond a sort of step further for 6th, and it will have like its own sort of Roll20 style interface where you can actually play everything online and yeah, all, all that kind of thing. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, especially since they took Magic Online so successfully, it seems like a sort of logical extension of those efforts. Oh, don't get me started about Arena. <laughs> I need to start playing that game. I saw you tweeting about it earlier today, and I was almost, I almost demolished you on Twitter. <laughs> I'm doing it free to play now, which you can do. Which, you, but you know, if you want better cards quicker, you need to pay money. So Shocked! It's, it's it's one of those things again. You know, you can have these fancy things for your role playing if you want. It does cost a bit of extra money. That's all. But you know, 
Yeah, I, I don't think it's um, I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily. If, no, no, if you're no. Providing good stuff that people want, and then they'll buy it. And if they're not, then they won't, and it'll down the line. So sort itself out. Okay. Does anyone have any questions? Of course, if you'd like to come up on stage and ask them, you can just uh, press the little wavy button that says "show request" at the bottom of the Discord, or you can post them in a lecture theatre if you'd like me to ask our guests on your behalf instead. Any questions? Dead silence. <laughs> You've been too informative. Answered all questions in our initial pitch. That's what we like to see. Okay, I guess a question for you then, Ian, is that, do you see any crossover between the tabletop stuff that's coming out in terms of board games and other things like that uh, related to role-playing games? So I'm thinking, for Are example... you mean mechanically or... Um... Uh, yeah, any kind of crossover, really. So stuff like yeah. uh, Steve Boy's Games have done a Dark Souls board game, for example, and, the, you know, yeah, um, that's a computer game going into board games and stuff like that. And I think there are some board games that have been sort of like edging towards being being more of a role-playing game and some board games that have Gleamhaven, yeah. is it, that's got like role-playing elements to it. It's almost a role-playing game in itself. One I've uh, played recently is uh, by Plaid Hat Publishing called Forgotten Waters. And it's basically, it's got one of these sort of, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but a lot of board games coming out right now, or quite a few, have got this sort of fold-out, spine-bound sort of thing that you lay flat for different adventure pages, like the new Gloomhaven Jaws the Lion has got it, where you lay out the board. It's a book that you open up for the board. And this has that as well. And it's a, basically a piratical adventure game. And there, I've had a lot of fun with it. I, I, I've played one session of it, had a lot of fun with it. But I'd be the first to say that it's more got RPG elements than it does have a lot of board game mechanics in it. Okay. And it's got like a sort of narrated story kind of thing. And you've got your own character kind of you got your own character, little character to fill out. And it's more about the story of the characters and what happens to them. It's not really very heavily mechanical. So yeah, that kind of, that's how kind of crossover is definitely happening. And I'm always a big fan of games that have emergent stories and that kind of thing coming through them. So yeah, I, th- I think uh, board games have a huge tendency to learn mechanics. Like you get trends in board games a lot, deck building, worker placement, whatever. So yeah, I think they will absolutely take lessons from the popularity of like D and D fifth edition, and you're seeing more uh, sort of actual play series by video, sort of critical role that kind of thing. You're seeing a lot of crossover with the success of some elements from RPGs into board games. That's for certain. I will just get Simon up on stage now to ask. Hello, Simon. Hi, hi. So yeah, I've got my son and uh, his his son's into role playing over the lockdown and. He's just looking for sort of recommendations for the sort of 10 to 13 age group, really. You know, you guys have played a lot more than <laughs> anyone I know. 10 to 13, eh? Good age. <laughs> so yeah. I should I should <laughs> interest here because um, in my day job, I'm a primary school teacher. Um, and my current age that I teach <laughs> is nine and 10 year olds. So I have some experience with this and doing stuff in schools and what have you. And... Um, there is a lot that you can do with 10 to 13 year olds and there's a lot that you can't do so that and it, it means that sometimes the games you want to play with them are not the kind of games you have in your head um so brief rundown people will tell you go rules light that's decent advice but it's not compulsory when you think about the games that you started with i'm sure you were 11 12 or 13 when you started playing 
and it was maybe yep. the Red Box D and D, or it was RuneQuest, or it's Call of Cthulhu. It was, these were not like games that we learned to play. What we did was we had a decent GM and some mates who kind of helped us along with it. So that's more important than the rule set that you pick. Um, what I would say is that you can go extremely rules light, and a game I would recommend would be Quest, which is as light as it comes, but as story as it gets. Um, it's a single D20 roll to adjudicate anything, and there's no modifiers to it. It's essentially like, like tossing a four-sided coin. It sounds terrible, doesn't it? But it's, it, it really does work. Um, and it's built for streaming, so it's that kind of engagement that gets behind it. And what I find utterly bonkers about about kids of that age group is their their willingness, in fact, their demand to cross pollinate genre, like I would never have tolerated. So, if you set up a fantasy role playing game scenario for them, one of them will want to be a robot. They will all want to have tiny dragons as familiars. They're going to want to hover. They're going to want to have pink fairy wings. One of them is going to want to be a cowboy and ride a dinosaur. And you kind of have to say yes to all of that and go with it because it's bonkers. And that is the, that is the normal nerd experience for young teenagers these days. That's the cartoons they watch. That's the influences they have. It's not. It is a little bit Harry Potter, but it's Harry Potter with laser guns because why not? <laughs> so pick pick your genres, mix them all together, get all your GURPS books, chuck them into a blender. Um, and make it just a single D20 resolution system. That'll get you somewhere. Fantastic. Cool. Awesome. Cheers. Thanks, Brad. Okay, no more for that. So, gents, where can we find all your bits and pieces on the Internet of Things? Well, you can go to whatwithasmartpartydo.com. Uh, we've got a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash the smart party. Uh, you can find me at at the underscore smart underscore party Baz is at Baz Stevens uh, and a bunch of the persons especially if you look for RPG and smart party we are sure to turn up awesome well thank you very much gents I'm very glad to have you in the HQ for the first interview of the year thank you very much for coming along total pleasure thanks ever so much yeah. it's a pleasure okay thanks very much folks uh, I'm just going to shut the stage down now bye bye for now Thank you.